Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. This spring, I introduce you to Lupus Detroit with an inspiring interview from its founder, Sharon Harris. Lupus Detroit is a voluntary health organization dedicated to eliminating lupus as a major health problem through education, advocacy, and service. They call themselves lupus warriors. Lupus warriors can't always afford medications. Others will go to bed hungry. Lupus Detroit helps by providing grants to help warriors meet their daily expenses sometimes pay rent or mortgages, and even go back to school. Besides its annual gala, Lupus Detroit raises money through its annual Lupus Walk for Warriors. The walk in 2016 raised over $30,000 that went directly to warriors in need. Today, we're talking with one of those warriors, Beverly Humphrey. Beverly is a 67-year-old African-American woman who was diagnosed with lupus in 1976 at age 26. She's been living with the disease for 41 years. Beverly was the first in her family to receive a diagnosis of systemic lupus. Her younger sister was diagnosed two years later and passed away in 2001 from complications related to lupus. Years later, Beverly's oldest niece was also diagnosed. By that time, Beverly had been living with lupus for 27 years and was instrumental in getting her niece to the proper health care services. In 2002, Beverly joined the Southfield Lupus Support Group, where she began to experience the camaraderie, strength, joy, and empowerment of sharing with other lupus warriors. Her experience with this group helped her assist her niece in getting her niece the proper health care, as well as being able to offer a wealth of knowledge based on her own years of experience living with this serious illness. Like most lupus patients, Beverly has experienced her share of challenges and her determination to live victoriously in spite of this difficult diagnosis. Some of her achievements include earning her bachelor's degree in social work in 2006, and just this past May, earning her master's degree in counseling from the University of Detroit Mercy. Beverly has served as a leader and speaker for many women's groups on a variety of topics, ranging from spirituality, HIV, AIDS, to what it means to live with lupus. It was during the time she served as the Southfield Lupus Support Group facilitator that she was introduced to Lupus Detroit founder Sharon Harris. 
She considers it to be one of her greatest honors to have been present when Sharon was inspired to create Lupus Detroit. Most importantly, Beverly is passionate about helping to encourage and empower women to live their best lives, not in spite of the challenges they face with a lupus diagnosis, but because of those very challenges. She truly is a lupus warrior. Beverly, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm so happy to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm great today, Michelle. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. really appreciate the opportunity to speak on this very important subject. Well, you know, it was funny because um, when Sharon and I were talking about who to have come back in and sort of talk about, give their personal testimony, I said, you know, I was just like blown away by your presence at the Lupus Gala. I mean, you have a fierceness about you. You look like if I was lupus and I came up to you, I knew I know I had a fight on my hands. You really, in so many ways, embody lupus warrior. Well, I, I so, look at it that way, I have to say, um, because lupus kind of does start the war itself. It attacks, uh-huh. and it's up to the lupus patient to decide, how am I going to respond to this? And that's not easy. It, it, it can be very, very um, overwhelming, especially in the beginning. Well, I think, too, the fact that you also talk about how you have lived with it for 41 years. I mean, it certainly is challenging, but you have, you're standing up there saying you can not just survive, but thrive. Absolutely. And and what was it like? What have you seen the differences in the treatment and how, what's available to you in this 41-year span from from back when you first received your diagnosis? Well, I'll tell you, in the very beginning, I had been having symptoms for about a year and a half. And I was married at the time. I had a very young son. And I was more concerned with taking care of my family than I was with the symptoms that I was having. My family doctor, we didn't have primary care physicians back there. We just had family doctors, had been trying to get me to go see a rheumatologist, and I simply wouldn't go. Um, at one point, my husband and I uh, separated, and during that time, the symptoms start to become exacerbated. The stiffness, mm-hmm. stiffness in my hands moved to my joints, my shoulders, my knees, my hips, and it really became very painful just to get dressed. So I went to um, the rheumatologist finally, and what she said to me was, judging by the blood tests and all the other lab work, I had something a bit more serious than rheumatoid arthritis, which is what I thought I might have. And that was the first time I heard the word lupus. It was a word to me. I had never heard of it. I had no context in which to put it. There was no Google back then in 76, so I went to a library, and the only book that I could find was a medical dictionary that informed me that this was a very serious disease, and it was actually almost always fatal. So needless to say, I really panicked. I called my doctor right up and I asked her why in the world hadn't she told me that I was about to die. And she kind of chuckled a little bit, which was, you know, kind of took me aback a bit. And she said, no, that, that's not true. That's no longer true. We have medications that you can take. And depending upon your compliance and how the medications work, there's no reason to believe that you can't live a reasonably normal life, the length of a normal life. 
but you do have to do some things. Um, and one of the things that she said to me, which was so difficult, which over time I have learned doctors are getting much better about this, was that I was going to have to quit my job. I was going to have to ask my husband to participate much more in housework and helping me around the house, and I was going to have to spend most of my time resting. I'm an African-American woman. I have never mm-hmm. seen in my community women sitting at home resting. Mm-hmm. All, women, all of my models were people who got up and went to work. My mother got up and went to work. I expected to get up and go to work. I certainly did not expect anyone to tell me to quit my job. And um, the other part of it was that I was, of course, estranged with my husband, so there was no asking him to help with anything. But the, the problem with the whole situation was that she did not inquire into me mm. as a person. She, she treated me as though I was a disease that needed to be fixed instead of a human being that needed to be helped. And over time, I have seen that change. I have seen doctors become much more cognizant, much more sensitive to the lupus patient as a whole person to recognize that you have to treat the entire human being and not just the symptoms that this person is presenting, that you've got a woman here or a man but mostly women and mostly women of uh, color who are trying to live their lives as best they can and who want to continue to do that as much as possible in spite of the symptoms, in spite of the medications um, that we have to tolerate because back when I started taking medication, there's only a couple to take, and they had as many symptoms and caused you as much problems as as, uh, the disease did. Mm -hmm. So, you know... um, one of the medications, Plaquenil, seemed to work very well, but uh, it also had a tendency to cause you to disrupt your vision. And that's one of the problems I ran into with it. So I couldn't take that. I started taking prednisone, which over a long period of time can cause damage to your bones, your skeletal system. And I was not aware of that at the time. So there was not a lot of information, information provided to me as a patient so that I could participate fully in my own care, I got a tooth pulled and had a lupus flare-up, which means that mm. the symptoms get worse. And I didn't know the doctor rheumatologist was puzzled about why I had this flare-up because I had been coming along pretty well. And finally, I said to her, she asked me, had something unusual happened? And I said, well, the only thing I can think of was that I got my tooth pulled. And she kind of almost yelled at me, you, you got your tooth pulled and you didn't tell me? I couldn't see the connection between getting a tooth pulled and having lupus. And what she explained to me was that any type of trauma that your body experiences can cause the lupus to flare up. So to head that off, I needed to be taking an antibiotic. I needed to increase my prednisone to stop the lupus from flaring. But that was never shared with me, so I did not know that. Nowadays, we are finding that there is more information that is available to people just online um, now, but doctors are starting to understand that they need to share their information, that it's a partnership that you're dealing with now with with, with your patient. It's not, I'm telling you what to do. It Mm -hmm. is, how can we work together to make sure that you're having the best possible experience in spite of this very serious challenge? You know, you talk, there's that, there, there is that. You're an African-American woman. Here you were. You were a wife. You mm-hmm. were a mother. You had been yeah. working. 
And, you know, and culturally, like you said, to have someone say, well, you go home and, you know, you rest and your husband is just going to have to go and pick it up. And, you know, let's not forget the needs that your child has and what you want to do for that. I mean, to just sort of say that, I can see that also it goes against culturally everything that you had learned coming up. Absolutely, absolutely. And, And she seemed to have no awareness of that at all. She just spoke it. Matter of fact, you know, very matter of fact, this is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to do. And then you're going to take this medication and that's that. And of course, so I rebelled. I did not take the medication after a while. I noticed it was making my hair fall out. So I stopped taking it. I hadn't yet gone back home and told my husband. So I was still separated, still trying to manage things, still taking care of myself and my son. And suddenly I had a, a very bad experience in my chest. It felt as though my heart had broken loose and it was just ro- rolling around inside my mm-hmm. chest. I called her. She told me to go to the hospital, went to the hospital, had some blood work done. They sent me back home with a higher dose of prednisone and she and I spoke. And she said to me, um, well, you've got a choice now because from the blood test I see you're not taking your prednisone the way you should. And I offered her my complaint that it was making my face fat, my hair is falling out, I didn't know any of this was going to happen. And she said, well, you know, that is one of the side effects, but the problem is that this is how we treat it now. So you can either keep not taking it and then keep having this kind of attack, or you can take the medication, um, do as I suggested that you do, slow way down and feel better. So Mm -hmm. at that point, I contacted my estranged husband and explained to him what was happening. And I did go back home, and I did quit my job just for briefly, because I, was not, I did not do well with no money of my own. I just did not know how to do that. So I got a part-time job. And my husband did help out. He um, did all of the vacuuming, he did the laundry, and he cooked breakfast every day. Unfortunately, he felt as though he needed something extra for his contribution. So he got what he called was a uh, surrogate wife. Mm. And um, once I found out about her, then I realized we were not going to work out. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I had to file for divorce. And also, I had to make a decision about how I was going to provide for myself and my son. I was going to have to feel well enough to work full time. So my next challenge was to figure out how am I going to do that? How am I going to feel well enough to do what I need to do at this point? Because as I say, culturally, you know, for me, it was this is what black women did. You did. You mm-hmm. handled your business. You handle your business. You do what's necessary. You don't complain about it. It doesn't matter if you don't feel that good. It's so what? You've got kids to take care of. You've got a home to take care of. So that's what I focus my attention on. And so okay. slowly, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I have a question. Were your health care providers, were they from the African-American community? No, no, this my very okay. first doctor was a white woman, and mm-hmm. I got the feeling from her the way we can that she was not accustomed to working with African-American people. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think that was part of the issue that we just did not, we were not speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I have to say, subsequent, subsequently, my next two doctors were also white, but they were much more sensitive to me as an African-American person and as a woman. Mm-hmm. So I had better experiences with them. So it's not necessarily the race. It's the individual. I think sometimes it's just the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, too, like, you know, I think that 
it was cultural, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a cultural difference, and I think that education sometimes helps us expand it. But then on the other side, African Americans often, I mean, are so such a hard-hit community with lupus. Had you heard about lupus, or I know that later your sister developed it, but prior to your diagnosis, had that even been on your radar, like someone in your family, someone you knew in the community? Michelle, I'll tell you, the next call I made after I talked to the doctor and she gave me that diagnosis was to call my mother, ask her, was there anybody in the family who had ever heard of this? Did we have any history of it anywhere? She called her sister's. Both sides of the family started looking back to see, has anyone ever been diagnosed? And we could not find anyone. That doesn't Mm. mean, however, that there were people before me who didn't have it. It just may have meant that people did not get treated. They may not have sought help. If there is, in the past, I read some information that said that for a long time, African-American women were diagnosed with venereal disease and Mm. were treated with antibiotics because that's what they thought it was. Lupus can be very, very difficult to diagnose because it's chameleon-like. It can show up like so many other diseases, and lots of lupus patients go through years of misdiagnosis before they're treated, before they're accurately diagnosed and receive the proper treatment. That's one of the things that has happened. And you have to wonder, I recall just wondering, if the reason we know so little is because it impacts African-American of African-American women. And we're on the bottom of the totem pole in terms mm-hmm. of how we care, you know, the, the attention that we receive. Well, because you know, I, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that made me think too, because I know when Sharon and I were talking, like she was going to a traditional, a historically black college. And mm-hmm. I said, didn't it, didn't it, you know, hit somebody there? You know, didn't it occur mm-hmm. to them? And it wasn't, and I think like what you were saying, like as African-American women, you know, we weren't looked at that right. way. It was like, you know, like yeah. you said, you just keep going to work, you keep doing this, they'll give you something, and if you die, you know, it, that level of investigation. And it seems like, like you said, there might have been somebody in your family who did have lupus, but it just was never diagnosed. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I think. It was actually eight years before I found out that it affected mostly, primarily African-American women. Someone gave me a Barbara Walden beauty book for Christmas. And in that book was the very first time I saw anywhere in any type of reading that information, that it affects black women three times more often than any other population of people. This is eight years after I've had the diagnosis, eight Hmm. years. And I just thought, well, how how can this be? How can it be that this is the first I'm hearing of this? None of my doctors, none of my doctors mentioned that to me at all, not one of them. By this time, I think I'd had three. I had the first woman, and she and I just could not communicate. So I found another doctor and was very happy with her, but her husband um, got a job out of state, so she moved away. And then I met um, the doctor that I stayed with for almost 15, 20 years, and he didn't mention. So no one's... No one told me I did not have that information. So it, was, it left me out of the loop of going any place where I could find some support. Mm. 
You know, there was no place I did not know, oh, there's this group over here, there's this group of women over here. There's this. There was none of that. For a long time, there was none of that. My sister, who was diagnosed two years after me, she and I were each other's support group because we were the only two human beings we knew. When your sister first, be- had she been ill for a while and did, or I mean, or was she immediately diagnosed or because having watched what happened to you, did she then go and get tested? Well, here, what, what happened with her was I was diagnosed immediately. They knew what it was immediately. With her, it took them three months to mm. correctly diagnose her. They thought she had um, uh, several other things. And she got quite frustrated because they put her in the hospital. They were testing her. They were cutting her and doing biopsies and, and um, all kinds of things until they finally came to And they were aware of me. They were aware that I was mm. here and that I had lupus. But there was always a question, especially back then, there was, no, there was not enough research to say that it's hereditary or it's, it's, you know, there's something genetically going on. So they couldn't say for sure, let's look for this because it runs in families. No one could say that for sure, especially back then. There's more information about it now that seems to indicate that there may be some kind of genealogical some type of gene or something that makes you more apt to develop lupus than, than other people. Um, but they can't really say for sure. But in 1976, 78, when she was diagnosed, there just wasn't that information. So she kind of just suffered for three months without treatment because they didn't know what it was. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we couldn't find anyone else in the family. It was very very upsetting, very disconcerting. Mhm. Yeah, I imagine it was because I know I know that later on your niece was diagnosed, mm-hmm. but I mean, here you were, you were each other's support system and suddenly you recognize there's this in your family. You know, mm-hmm. it, you didn't yeah. know for a fact, but but there was clearly some type of indication if you had it and your sister had it. And I imagine that there had to have been some type of a, a fear even or very oh, yes. concern for your other female absolutely. members of your family. Absolutely, absolutely. We started paying much closer attention to each other, um, you know, in terms of any kind of uh, – Symptoms someone was having, you know, did you get yourself checked? Go get yourself checked. Make sure you're okay. Uh, when my, my niece, who was diagnosed, um, let's say she had, for her entire life, I had had lupus. So she had seen me living with it and, and it had proof that, you know, you can do this, that you can live with this. Nevertheless, when she started having symptoms, she responded just like I did. She did not want to go to the doctor. She did not want anyone telling her that she had something that she was not going to be healed from. She would not go. Her sister actually called me and asked me to speak to her because her sister, her younger sister, was concerned that she may have lupus and was not getting the care she needed to get. So I spoke with her. I called my doctor and asked him if he would see her and talked to her because we were concerned that this might be her diagnosis. She did that. He did that and did diagnose her with lupus. Um, with her and, with, and the other thing about lupus is that not everybody has the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. I have lupus affects my chest wall. I have to be careful of my lungs and my heart. Lupus affects my sister's central nervous system, so she started out having seizures. 
Mm. and um, had to take heavy medication for that, which she did not like because it made her drowsy. And she worked, you know, just like every other African-American woman. She had a job that she wanted to be able to perform. And it was difficult for her to stay compliant because the medication made her feel, I think the word she used was loopy and unable to perform her duties. So she had um, seizures for a while until I could speak with her and talk to her about what happens when she has seizures because she was not aware. She was not aware. I think she thought she just kind of fell asleep and woke back up. And I had to explain to her, no, that's not what's happening, and you're damaging your brain every time you have that experience. So she started to work with her doctor in terms of getting a medication, a blend of medications that would allow her to live her life as best she could and still be compliant and still manage the lupus, which is something that most um, new patients struggle with, is establishing that rapport, that partnership with the doctor, that probably the most important thing you can do besides, of course, accepting that you have it and becoming as knowledgeable as you can about this disease, but developing a working and collaborative relationship with your doctor so that he or she understands you have a life that you're trying to live, you want to be as well as you can be, and then determining what are the steps, what type of plan do we need to work out so I can do that. Because you can live for a long time now. We've, you know, we're well aware now that people live for a while with this. You, you don't get diagnosed and just next year you're not here anymore. Unfortunately, that does happen to some people, but that's, that's not generally how it goes. People live for decades. And you mm-hmm. want to have the best quality of life you can have in spite of all that lupus can do. It's very unpredictable. You can feel fine one day, you can feel fine for weeks, and suddenly lupus, you have a flare and you can't move. You, you can't, you're in pain, you're, you're exhausted. You go to the doctor and most of the time doctors are just kind of better guessers. They're telling you, well, it could be this, it could be that, not sure, why don't we try this, why don't we try that? So you learn things about the medical profession as well. You know, that, you know, they're, they're, they're learning just like we are. Do you find that it's almost like you, you do work collaboratively? I mean, you've lived with it for over 40 years. You've got a family history. And like you said, no one case is, is like the next. I mean, it, it's all over the place. So do you find now that as you're going to see doctors or if you're going online that now there's a, a collaborative effort for them to learn from you as you're as you, and you're educating them about what your situation is and that makes it like better for the community for people to find out information I I, I wish I could say yes to that but I, I really can't I, I find that it really is up to the lupus patient to go in with an attitude of you're going to be my partner mm. I am a person and you're going to treat me and not the disease you're going to please see me Please hear me. So you have to go in asking questions. You have to go in um, describing who you are and who it is you intend to be and having the willingness to work with the doctor to appreciate, of course, their expertise, but to also help the doctor understand that you are an expert as well. You know yourself mm-hmm. far better than the doctor does. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to, one of, that's one of the things that we try to help people do at our support group meetings when we have new people come and they're perplexed 
and they're hearing things in the community. You know, we have Dr. Jane and Dr. Cousin over here and Dr. Niece over here who heard that you should do this and heard that this will make it go away and to recognize those aren't the sources that you go to for information. And you go mm-hmm. to your doctors, you get information from them, but one of the things you must do is go in with questions and don't leave until the questions are answered in a way that you understand. Because doctors still have a tendency to speak doctor language. Mm. That's and, so true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that, I mean, and those are, are wise words, I think, for anybody that you need to think of when you go see your doctor, because often you talk to people and they say, well, he just gave me more pills, and, and you know, and, mm-hmm. and people tend to just like, they say that, and, and they aren't their own best advocate. And I right, think exactly. that from what you're talking and then just in general, particularly people of, of our community, we have mm-hmm. to become our own advocates. And like you said, if they're talking Dr. Dr. E's, have them break it down to, what you Absolutely. understand. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 as I told my very first doctor, that very first doctor, that as much as she knows about lupus, I still leave her, her office with my lupus, and I'm the one that has to live with it in between the time that I see you next. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you need to appreciate that and um, help me take, take from this encounter with you today whatever information I need so that I am able to live my life to the best of my ability when before, wow, I'm not seeing you because, you know, doctors aren't with you every day. So you're having to make decisions about am I well enough to go ahead and do this or is this a day that I should just take it easy and not go? Should I call in? Should I try to stay up another hour and get this done? Should I take the kids over here? Or is this the day where I have to let them down and say I'm so sorry? Should I cancel this trip? You're generally the person who has to know yourself well enough to know if I can mm-hmm. say yes or no to the things that I'm making. So it's a very important that we involve ourselves in our care. Okay, well, Beverly, we're going to take our first break here. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Beverly Humphrey. She is a lupus warrior, and she's sharing her story with us and going to talk a little bit about the fifth annual lupus walk coming up so we'll be right back you're listening to collections by michelle brown this episode of collections by michelle brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Beverly Humphrey. You know, Beverly, when you sent me over your bio, and I and there's a line that I'm going to read in a minute, but one of the things I could see 
that, you know, like you said, like you were estranged from your husband. You tried to get back together. Um, it didn't work out. Your sister came down, was diagnosed with lupus. Your niece had lupus. And, you know, and many people would wring their hands and go like, why me or our family is cursed or what did we do wrong? But you say, you said in your bio that one of your favorite Bible verses is, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's how I look at things. I remember when I was first diagnosed, I did say that. I went to my father and I said, Daddy, why is this happening to me? Why me? And my father very calmly and kindly said to me, well, Beverly, if not you, who? And if not now, when? Mm. And at first I thought, oh, how unkind that was. But then I thought to myself, well, who would I want to point to and say, God, give it to her and not me? And I couldn't see myself doing that. One of the things that I've learned about lupus is because, you know, in all things, God, I believe, is in all things. So there's good in all things. There's a higher good in all things. One of the gifts that that lupus has given me is a very deep appreciation for well-being, for just being healthy. I, look at, I watch people all the time who get up and jump up and go and walk and do this, that, and the other with no thought to the fact that it might hurt when I stand up, it might hurt when I want to take a step, I might not be feeling good tomorrow, they're absolutely certain that they're going to be okay tomorrow and next week and the next week, just like they are today. For me, it's a blessing. I am delighted when I wake up and there's absolutely no, there's an absence of pain because that's unusual for me. I, I really am happy about that. It's given me that gift. The other thing that, that I think lupus has given me is the appreciation for the fact that I am not just this body. God, mm. I am spirit, and that's, that's where I live. Mm-hmm. You know, this body is a physical thing, and all physical things are subject to deterioration. They're, they're all physical. They're all subject to wear and tear, aging, all those kinds of things. So if I just purely identify with my body, then I'm going to be sad. Yes, I am. I'm going to be depressed. But if I recognize that God has given me a spirit, a spirit, and that's where he dwells with me in spirit, and spirit does not age, it does not get sick, it does not become weary, it goes on and on and on and on. I think of myself in a higher place then whatever my body is doing, I can accept, I can do what, whatever it is I'm able to do, but I can be, still be okay in my spirit because nothing has happened to it at all. It has not been touched. Now, I know you were saying that for a while, your sister, you and your sister were each other's support group. Then mm-hmm. you joined the Southfield Lupus Support Group. And it was founded and facilitated by the late Sylvia King. How did you meet Miss King, and how did you get involved with us? And what can and tell us about her? Okay, um, this was the year after my sister died. She died very unexpectedly. She had been in the hospital. We were expecting her to come home. She had had a kidney biopsy because her kidneys were involved. You know, she had lupus nephritis, and um, she bled to death from the kidney biopsy. 
we were not expecting mm. that. So there went mm-hmm. my support system. So I just started looking around. Now, of course, you could go online. There was the Michigan Lupus Alliance and the Michigan Lupus Foundation. I went online to those organizations and asked if there was a support group. That's how I found the Southfield group, and that's when I met Sylvia King, who was just the most marvelous human being I, I had ever met, especially in dealing with with lupus the way she did. She was very, very compassionate very determined. Her mission was to empower women of color who are living with this disease so that we are advocates for ourselves, so that we have, again, the best possible experience in spite of, and so that we don't feel alone. So many times we would meet people that would come to that support group who had never heard of anybody else having it, who treated it almost as though it were a secret almost as though mm. they had been diagnosed with a venereal disease and they didn't want anyone to know. And, uh, but they were still unhappy. They were confused. They didn't know how to interact with their doctor. And uh, what she did was she set an example for me of this is how to work with people, to give people hope. She was strong but very, very kind, very generous in making sure that when you left those meetings, you felt better than you did when you came. You had answers, you had resources, you had information. And always we welcome people back you know, to participate. We would hold uh, one activity a year. We had a lupus luncheon, lupus awareness luncheon. It was in October because that was lupus awareness month. However, breast cancer decided that they wanted October <laughs> for breast cancer awareness month. So we uh-huh. said, okay, well, we're no match for them. Let's move to May. Well, breast cancer decided it also wanted May. And we decided at that point, okay, we're not moving any further. We're just going to stay here. And um, that's what we did. But Sylvia, um, she's just the the most wonderful person. We lost her, I think it was in 2007. Um, She had complications from lupus, but she had been diagnosed when she was 18, lost one of her kidneys immediately, and was told that she wasn't going to live much longer. And she lived until she was 60. You know, I think that one of the things that you pointed to is like how people don't know what lupus is. And I know that when I I was first talking to Sharon, I was telling her that, you know, the first time that I heard about it, I had a coworker and she had lupus. And at at first no one knew what it was. Then when they did, and about the time when she was going to try and come back to work, there were people who just heard autoimmune. Uh, mm-hmm. They heard all these things, and there was a fear, you know, that went up not bothering to to know. And I mean, and sometimes I can still recall seeing her just even within her family having to have to explain to that that, you know, what exactly it was she had, what it was she was going through, what it right. meant on the days when she hurt so badly that she just couldn't go do anything. She wasn't being just lazy. No, mm-hmm. she wasn't on drugs. No, she didn't mm-hmm. have something that she could give to others. But so that support group, I mean, to go in some place where people, when you yeah. can say, I had one of those days and they understand that. How absolutely. important is that? Yeah, it, it, it's essential. It's absolutely essential because unfortunately in our community, we're, not that well, our culture does not, for whatever reason, encourage a lot of research. Let's find out what this is. We go a lot by what Aunt, Aunt Jane says or 
Mama Joe says over here or what the neighbor says over here. And we, we're not getting our information from truly reliable sources, from valid resources. And so we, we go by rumor and we decide, well, you know, I heard that you don't, you don't live. I remember one woman coming in and saying that she heard that after 10 years you're going to die. Mm. And, and by this point, I think I probably had 30 years. And so I could show her I'm right here and it's 30 years later and I'm fine. Um, so, yeah, to have that support because lots of people, one of the things about lupus, let me, let me start again. One of the things about lupus is the four things all of us hear all the time. You don't look sick. Mm. Now you think, you know, oh, good, I don't want to look sick. But <laughs> when people, you know, you know, when people hear sick, they want to see sick. And if you were fine yesterday, then what's the reason you're not fine today? Unfortunately, that is exactly what lupus does. I could be, I can feeling fine today right now while I'm talking to you. That's no guarantee that I won't go to bed tonight and wake up because of some pain in my shoulder or my hand and not be able to go back to sleep. There's no guarantee that won't happen. That's one of the most emotionally draining things about this disease is that you cannot say with any degree of certainty that I'll be fine next week. Oh, yes, of course I'm going to go on that trip because you don't know. You just, you're, you don't know when lupus is going to do what lupus does. Now, there are things that you can definitely do to trigger it. If you're doing mm-hmm. too much, if you're exhausting yourself, if you're not taking your medication, then, yeah, those are, you know, you, you can trigger it. But when you know you've done everything that you're supposed to do, that's still no guarantee that lupus is going to stay quiet. That's no guarantee at all. So you, you, you learn one of the most difficult things to learn about this is to take your life one day at a time and to make sure that the people who you consider your supports and your family, uh, your friends, understand that I might not feel this well tomorrow. I have friends that I travel with, and all of my friends are very supportive, and they understand that my day is going to end before theirs does, that while they're going to stay out until 1 o'clock in the morning, at 10 o'clock I'm going back to the hotel and there's no fighting, oh, there's no, oh, come on, Beverly, you can, no one does that because they understand I'm going to take care of myself and myself needs to go to bed now and that's what I'm going to do. So you, again, once again, you have to develop that determination to be your best advocate and to accept that this is how, this is what living with lupus is like, that you can't say for certainty, I'm going to be fine. And so we, we always encourage people to bring family members so that they can, the family members can see that your, your loved one is not, she's not faking. Mm-hmm. This happens to all of us. All of us experience this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that one of the things, too, is like that, that not only when you consider like 40 years in and here you are, you went mm-hmm. back to school you got a degree in social work. You got your master's degree in counseling. And you say how people often want to look at you being sick. You had a son, and he watched you do yes. go through this, and mm-hmm. then you went back to school. And mm-hmm. you got these degrees, and you're a spiritual retreat leader. You're mm-hmm. a speaker. I mean, to have your son be able to see this, how powerful is that to him? No matter what challenges that that he is faced with, 
he can mm-hmm. look to you as an example. Absolutely, absolutely. And he does. I, I know he does. A few years back, or maybe even 10 years, he was diagnosed with diabetes, and mm-hmm. um, type 2 diabetes. And he started um, a little pity party in the beginning, and then he remembered his mother, who at this point had had lupus for, I think, at least 30 years, maybe 25, 30 years. And he realized, okay, now I've seen mom go through all these things and still keep it moving, still keep going, still keep going. I can do this. I can do what I'm supposed to do to take care of myself. And that's one of the things I really am grateful for, that he was able to pick up in his observing of me, was the, the importance of doing what you're supposed to do to take care of yourself. So he's very, very careful about what he eats. He's very, he does not drink. He um, um, keeps his weight like it's where it should be. And uh, he just maintains real good health habits because mm-hmm. he was able to see through me that, you know, you don't play with stuff like this. If you want to be able to live your life, you, you're going to have to make the necessary changes and make, you know, adapt where you need to adapt. Because that's something that one of the gifts God has given us. Human beings can adapt to anything. We can adapt up, we can adapt down. So hopefully the choice is going to yield, the choice he's making and we will continue to make is to adapt upward and not downward. Mm-hmm. You know, you are a powerful because when you took the stage at the gala and, you know, and you said, this is what 40 years of lupus looks like. And, you know, you're a powerful speaker. Um, when you, you went into social work, you went into counseling, but what made you decide that, you know what, not only do I need to do this like within my life, within the support group, but then, like you said, you spoke into groups ranging in size from 50 to over 1,500 mm-hmm. on everything from spirituality, HIV, AIDS, uh, mm-hmm. living with lupus. What made you say, I need to take this and do, and, you know, because public speaking isn't always easy. Like you said, you know that there are going to be people looking there like, oh, she doesn't look sick, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you're there and, and you, you stepped out and you saw that as part of almost like a mission. Mm-hmm. I, I, all the credit has to go to God. I have to say that. It has to go to God. I never in my life, even in my early years of living with lupus, did I see myself as, as an advocate or someone who was going to be speaking to groups of people. I did not see that. But when the occasion arose, uh, at the first time I was asked to speak, um, uh, a family member asked me to speak um, to a group of nurses. They were trying to find out more information about lupus. So I said, well, he knew I had lupus. And he said, do you think you can do it? I said, I guess, you know, I can. And what I discovered was that I really enjoyed sharing the knowledge. I really enjoyed giving people information. I really enjoyed... Um, being given the uh, honor of, of providing people with something more than what they had when they came in. I think that is so important, to leave people better than you found them. Mm. And that, that is something that God gave me. That's an awareness I did not come into the world with. I know that. I've, I've attended a Lupus Detroit meeting, and you, know, and, and you can see that it's not a pity party. I mean, no. they come in and, and, and women, I mean, in, in some ways it's almost like a refuge. You might come in with this, this lupus monkey on your back, but mm-hmm. when you leave, it's like, 
it's a cloak that you're wearing, but you you know everyone is standing a little taller. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. There's there's power in recognizing, first of all, that it's not just me. That I'm not this oddball out who's just been given this very unfair diagnosis, and I don't, and no one else is struggling with this. And then you come in and you meet a room full of people who know, like you're describing before, who understand exactly how you feel when you're saying, I was fine two weeks ago. And then I was trying to get up and go, and I was so tired, I was in so much pain, and I couldn't. And my kids got angry, and my husband didn't understand. But we, everybody in this room does. We know that really happened to you. We know you were really sick the next day because we've been through that. It's that validation, that real validation. It's not just some doctor telling you, oh, it's going to be okay. It's real people who look just like you, sound just like you, who are doing exactly and living exactly as you are that makes it valid. So you feel as though, okay, it's not just me. This is real. And I have people around me who care, who understand, who know, and who can help. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, mm-hmm. after some time, I just want to say this real quick, after some time, you realize that you have the same ability. That mm-hmm. you're going to be able to help someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about how now how you have um, uh, support, but you also try to bring the families and do you think that, you know, you've seen 40 years, although I did hear some things that you said it sounded like, you know, haven't changed, but there's been a lot that's changed. What do you mm-hmm. see as the biggest change within the African-American community regarding lupus and supporting uh, lupus warriors and their families? I think one of the things I really have to say is that I see more people and hear more people who have at least heard of lupus now and who have an understanding that it is something that is really serious that people are living with. There are more people now who, when, you're, when I, I was at a, a community health fair over the weekend and I, we, I set up a table with uh, lupus Detroit information and, and information on lupus and several people came over um, interested in knowing more because they had heard of it. There were a couple people who hadn't, but the vast majority of them had at least had an awareness, understood that this was something that happens and that it happens to mostly African-American women. And that, that was um, new. That, that, that's new. There was a time when we used to go to health fairs and you'd have people who just had no idea or they'd have a puzzled look on their face. Well, I kind of heard of it, but I don't know what it is. Is that like AIDS? You get questions like that. Mm. You no, know, it's, that's not, it's, it's not AIDS. It's, it's not contagious. Um, I've had people who, one woman I remember came to the table and then pulled me inside and said, well, you don't want really, you, and whispered to me, you really don't want people to know that you have it though, right? And mm. I just kind of looked at her and I said, well, there's no reason people can't know. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You don't get this because of shameful behavior. It's not a behavioral condition. Um, so, you, you know, and it makes you wonder how, how is that conversation going on in the community? What, what faction is there out there that believes that? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's like I can recall a few years ago going and it was like um, they were having, I guess it was like a women's day, but they were at a church, but they were doing like a whole weekend of things. 
Mm-hmm. And um, they and from they were talking about different diseases and things. And one woman said, you know, it's important that you st- you talk about this that you have mm-hmm. lupus or if you're HIV positive mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you might not recognize that there's somebody who's sitting right beside you. Exactly. Who, if you don't talk about it, is not going to go and get the help that they need, Mm -hmm. reach out, you know, not even medically, but just the support level of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the pastor said, you know, you're right. He said, and we have to stop thinking of it like we're giving money to support they and them, that Mm -hmm. this is our community and we have to recognize that there's some members of our community who may have lupus who are right here and might not even know about it. But if we don't talk about it, how will they ever know to go and seek the help through a rheumatologist, you know, uh, cardiologist, dermatologist, or even bring it up with their primary care physicians to mm-hmm. test them for that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That That is so true. I recall that Sharon asked me to go to a Women's Day at, at a church and um, after speaking, um, a couple of other people stood up and, and talked about um, lupus. But there was one woman there who had been in a part of that congregation for 20 years and had never told anyone she had lupus until that day. Mm. No one knew she had lupus. And I, we spoke afterwards because I think, you know, when you go and you speak on it, you, exactly as you say, you give people permission. It gives people permission to speak up. You can say this. If this lady can stand here and talk about lupus, maybe I can stand up and let the congregation know that I'm living with lupus as well. She had never said a word. And what I, and I of course, invited her to come to our support group meetings and let her know that there was power in her story because she has the ability to demonstrate to others who may have just been diagnosed that you can go on for countless numbers of years and be all right. You just don't have to do it alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and also when that, and it, and it gives you the, that kind word that sometimes that's all that you knew, because mm-hmm. I recall that coworker I was telling you about, there were family members who thought maybe she's on drugs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they went, you know, oh, she's just yeah. lazy. They went like the yeah. wrong way where yeah. she needed a kind word. She needed yeah, a absolutely. support, you know. And mm-hmm. and once they found out and it was out and people started to educate it, the whole family dynamic changed. But exactly. initially, you know, it was like it wasn't supportive. And, and that's also how you break the stigma of talking about it is when you let people know and you give people the opportunity to be better towards you. Exactly, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win. The more people mm-hmm. know... The more we we will we will achieve, the more will more research will be done, the more advocacy that's out there, the more people become aware that it exists, that it's that we can do something about it, that you can live a healthy and valid life. Um, the more we're, the conversation is going to grow, because you know as you say, I'm sure there there's any number of people who are living silently and quietly and secretly with lupus under the belief that that's the best way to go. Some people who have been told that they're announcing that they have lupus shows a lack of faith. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of difficult to navigate. You know, when someone says something like that, well, my pastor, the the people at church say, if I just pray, it will go away. 
and you don't really want to it's a, you don't want to tackle anyone's faith you don't want to tackle anyone's belief system um, but you don't want to see people suffering needlessly either mm-hmm. so you mm-hmm. just kind of do what you can to offer the option mm-hmm. just come to the meetings and see if you find them helpful yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to take our second break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about this event that's coming up by the Lupus Walk and some of the great things that I know that through Lupus Detroit and support um, are happening. So okay. we'll be right back with my guest today, Beverly Humphrey, uh, who is a lupus warrior, and we'll be back with collections by Michelle Brown in a very few moments. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Well, we're we're back. Beverly, I have so enjoyed talking with you and, you know, and hearing really your testimony. And I mean, I, at the gala, I thought it was so great that like there were scholarships and there was two of the scholarships were for young women, but one was for a woman who was going back to school. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how great is that? Because everyone, you automatically think of scholarships, oh, well, they're teenagers or they're in. But here was this, this woman with her kids who were going back to school. And yeah. the scholarship was, was set up by someone who had lost his wife yeah. to lupus. And there were his kids with mm-hmm. him as they were yeah. giving that out. I mean, that is uh, that was just like one of the best, I mean, there are so many good moments, but that was one of the best moments there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're really happy. Lupus Detroit is an outstanding organization, and probably because of its founder and CEO, Sharon Harris. I met her um, when I was working with the Lupus Alliance. Uh, Sharon came aboard as their marketing and PR person, and she handled uh, one of our luncheons. And the word that she passed that she got out about our luncheons tripled the attendance from the year before. Um, and when she discovered that this organization, this prior organization, was not able to really do what she envisioned, what she saw as a need from her own personal experience and just her travels in her uh, profession, she decided to take it upon herself, you know, after a great deal of prayer and uh, consulting with others, 
to create this organization that would focus on the real-life problems that people with lupus are dealing with. I have been a beneficiary of their emergency financial grant. And what that does is many times you have lupus patients most of whom are African-American women, not necessarily all who are married, but who are running households working and are having to make decisions about whether or not to get my latest um, prescription filled because the copay is $97, or do I pay the light bill, or do I buy food? And one of the things that this, this um, grant is intended for is to help people to ease that financial difficulty to take away that having to choose between the lesser and even less um, to pay a bill for you, to pay your rent for you so that you can get that medication, so that you can take that test that's going to cost you money. Because, you know, unfortunately, it costs money to be sick. And uh, lots of people struggle with, with the cost of it, just going to the doctor. If you're being sent to a specialist or referred to two or three specialists, then that's money too. And that is one of the things that lupus patients are dealing with all the time, that if I go to this uh, specialist, what is he going to want me to pay? If he wants me to take a test, what is that going to cost? Those are the kinds of things that this happens in the real world of living with lupus. And that's what Lupus, lupus Detroit focuses on, that understanding that people need practical help. That's a very you know, special and difficult problem. I need to be able to buy food, and I also need to take my meds. And I, it, doesn't, it should not have to be one or the other. It needs to be both. So the walk that's scheduled is it, the fifth, for Lupus Detroit, the first time they had the walk, they raised $5,000. Last year, they, their goal was 35000 and they actually raised more than that. This year, the goal is $40,000, and I'm sure we're going to surpass that. We have teams of people who join to raise money, and you, know, you can register online at um, www.lupusdetroit.org. You can go online and register there. And you can register up until the day of the event, which is going to be on September the 2nd. The Lupus Walk takes place at the new Center Park. It's less than a mile. We don't ask Lupus Warriors to do a whole lot of strenuous walking. You know, maybe mm-hmm. sunlight, and we have to be careful about things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's less than a mile, and you're not required to walk the whole thing. As a matter of fact, if you just want to come, make a donation, participate, you know, just fellowship with other people, you're welcome to do that. The more, the better. The um, camaraderie is magnificent, the meeting new people with lupus, meeting new organizations. Um, I believe that the uh, ambassador this year is going to be Tavon Wilson. He's a Detroit Lion Safety. He's going to mm. be participating with us this year. Um, in past years, we've had the um, city council president, Brent Jones, and Channel 7 weather girl, Denise Isaac. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a wonderful time. There's going to be all types of activities. Let me see if I can. I've got a little cheat sheet here that's got <laughs> Well, Beverly, can I ask you a question? You know, mm-hmm. there's this health care debate going on. Mm. People who are living with lupus. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I can imagine that, that that has to send chills up and down their spine to wonder you know, I mean, because you're already, I'm already hearing you say how, like, sometimes 
there's a deductible already for your meds. But I mean, with this this debate that's going, doesn't I mean, does do you anticipate the need for the work that Lupus Detroit does? Did you find that more people are going to be making those t- those kind of tough decisions, which is all the more reason why we need people to get out there and walk on the second. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's exactly true. Exactly because. As it is now, we're not able to help everyone that asks. You know, we, there's, we, we don't have those, that level of funds yet. That is what we're striving for, to have the ability to say yes to as many people as possible while we're also supporting and advocating for greater research. We've just gotten a new medication for the – it took 50 years for them to find a new medication for us to take. We've been taking mm-hmm. the same medications for as long as – Lupus, we were, lupus was known, and it took them 50 years to come up with um, the, the new medication, and the name of it slips me right now. But if research is moving that slowly, that's not good. We, we, need, we need to ramp things up. We need to have the advocacy, the um, bodies behind us, the voices behind us to speak up and say, hey, we're over here too. We would like to see... Um, ourselves as well-known as breast cancer is. When you say breast cancer, mm-hmm. people are happy to easy, easily reach in their pockets. Here, what can I do? That's the kind of response we want from people when we say lupus. Okay, mm-hmm. here, what can we do? And we understand that this is difficult. It's a very difficult thing to, to deal with. It affects entire communities because it's really simple to me that if mom is sick, the whole family's sick. The whole family is suffering. And if you have mothers in the community who is sick, then you've got families who are, who are suffering. And that's a community that's suffering from this. It's not getting their needs met. She's not getting her medication because it's just too much money. And, and someone else needed a pair of shoes, so the, the money went to the shoes, which is what mothers do. That's just what mm-hmm. they do. And we decide, well, I'll just have to feel okay or tolerate this discomfort. And, uh, mm-hmm. and people should not have to make those kinds of decisions. So, yeah, there is a real need for people to really show up and to keep showing up because we, we have um, as many events as possible all throughout the year. This is just the main one, this one and the gala that we had mm-hmm. earlier this year. You know, there's going to be more and more things coming as time goes by, as our funding allows. You know, we will, we will be doing more and more. Well, you know, I think that one of the things that, you know, that I like and I admire so about Lupus Detroit, let me tell you, you know, Lupus Detroit doesn't have a huge staff and 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 paying out all of this. This money that they raise is going to Lupus Warriors. They're yeah. going in these grants. They're going mm-hmm. to, I mean, and, and I mean, I have to give a shout out to Sharon, too, because I'll tell you, she is out there beg, borrowing, stealing, twisting arms to get people to come and to, to show up and mm-hmm. to do this. And, I mean, I know that there's a lot of volunteers who are doing the work, so and unlike things where the money is going to resource, I mean, and, you know, and we're not knocking organizations that raise money for research. That's important, too. But mm-hmm. Lupus Detroit is dealing with the warriors, with, like you said, that decision between a new pair of shoes for Johnny, a coat for Betty, 
mm-hmm. you know, food in the refrigerator yeah. and mom's yeah. medicine. Yes, 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 exactly. And the board, all of the people who work on the board are lupus warriors, and they're volunteer. I, I, get, I get tired just watching, following Sharon on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know how she can showing up at places at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 6 o'clock in the evening, and 11 o'clock, she's still someplace with pictures, meeting with so-and-so and so-and-so and and enjoying herself because her passion is such that it feeds her. It just feeds her spirit and allows her to go on. But there are times when a a couple of us will contact her and say, you think maybe you might want to slow down just tomorrow? And she will say, I'm, go- I'm going to, I'm going to. And the next thing you know, she's back on Facebook. Well, I decided I could just come and show my face. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, if God's getting you there, then we're, we're going to keep praying for you. Because she mm-hmm. is really something to behold. She really is. She is very, very special. Mm-hmm. So could you once more give us the website where they can where people can reg and you can register to walk you can just give a donation um you can just come down and hang you know yes. and show support but bring sure. a check the, <laughs> so yep, what is exactly the website, the mm-hmm. website is www.lupusdetroit.org and you'll find the um the um icon there where you can click on and you can register registration if you want to participate is twenty dollars and if you just want to make a donation, you can do that. Um, there is free parking. It's at the new center park there. And this is free parking. But like I said, the walk is just a 0.8 miles, so there's just a less than a mile that you walk if you want to do that. There's complimentary snacks. There's going to be a balloon artist there. There will be face painting there by a lupus lawyer, Sandra Epps. There will be... Um, uh, did I say the, the snacks are available, the balloon artists, yeah. And then there's the camaraderie. There's the opportunity mm-hmm. to meet other people who are interested in participating or donating or learning more about lupus. It's just it's another win-win situation. It'll just be a lovely day. It starts at 9 o'clock. So if you want to wait until the day of to register, you can certainly do that. Mm-hmm. And, as you, and as you say, please, please remember to bring your checkbook. That's right. <laughs> now, um, and there are still, uh, there are support groups that aren't your support groups once a month? Yes, we meet once a month, uh, the fourth Saturday of the month, and it's not generally in one place. What Sharon has decided to do, which is very helpful, is to move the meeting around to areas in the Detroit metropolitan uh, area because not everybody can come to Southfield. Not everybody can get to the east side of Detroit. Not everybody can get to Midtown Detroit. So she has meetings so that the people who are centered in that area can come. The people who are in Southfield or in Oakland County can come to the meeting in Southfield. The people who are on the west side of Detroit can come to the meeting on Mount Elliott, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and, and experience that same camaraderie. Everybody's welcome at every meeting, of course, but if it's only viable for you to get to one, there's one that's going to be on your side of town. And they start mm-hmm. from start at 12 o'clock and they go to 1.30. And we're generally finished at 1.30. Mm-hmm. So they, they don't take up your whole day and you don't have to get up before soon. You know, they give you time to sleep in and feel well enough to get up because we understand that as lupus warriors, sometimes 9 o'clock in the morning just doesn't, you know, your body is not quite ready to go. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, Dove, I want to thank you again for being a guest here on the show. And I I will be putting things up about the walk and encouraging people to come, as well as other events. And I think that really uh, your conversation here today and what Lupus Detroit is doing is helping to encourage and empower women to live their best lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and... And would you close us out with your favorite Bible verse in your words? Absolutely. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Thank you, Bev. Thank and you. I, will, I will see you at the walk. Absolutely. I want to thank tonight's guest, Beverly Humphrey, a 41-year lupus warrior. I encourage you to join Lupus Detroit at their fifth annual Walk for Warriors, September 2nd in New Center Park. You can find out more by visiting their Facebook page. That's Lupus Detroit. I also want to thank you, our listening audience. You can listen to the show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's all for tonight. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you and good night.